Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And a little preview of what's coming up later on for our inbox. We have a listener who thinks it's a good idea to take her new dating relationship slowly, but she's wondering, is it possible to take it too slowly? So she wants some advice. I'm going to weigh in on that for her. And then for our culture segment, Eric Demeter is here uh, for part one of our discussion on his new book, How Should a Christian Date? Okay, if only it were that easy, but he claims it's not as complicated as people are making it. So listen in for that. Well, here we are for our roundtable. And uh, as if we haven't navigated enough in the last couple years uh, in talking through social media and all the angstiness around relationships that we have with other folks and some of the cultural issues that have come to play. I think we can all agree that the news media has been a factor in this. Now, some of you are like, oh, no biggie for me. I never even pay attention to the news. <laughs> okay, well, maybe you should just a little bit. But that said, it is hard to parse out some of the crazy. And so we're going to talk about the bias. And when I say this, I'm talking about bias on both sides of the issues, both, you know, multiple outlets. You can even Google like graphs of where various outlets fall on various spectrums of liberal conservative whatever it's really fascinating and um but we're going to have a conversation today with kaylee paul and john about bias in the news media so welcome y'all hey lisa hi Woohoo! okay this is going to be good because now kaylee and paul specifically and actually john had his background in radio um before coming here to The Boundless Show, which is kind of still radio, those of you radio listeners. But uh, Kaylee and Paul right now are actually working in the world of PR and communications and have to sift through all this kind of stuff. Um, Tell us a little bit about your news backgrounds as well as your news affinities and just personally what you get out of the news and your experience with it. Yeah, so I am actually a former TV news reporter, so studied journalism in college, wanted to pursue that my whole life. I actually uh, took a tour of one of the news stations in Denver in eighth grade, and that's what spurred my love for journalism and want to go into it. Um, For me, a big part of it was wanting to serve my community and find ways to inform my community of things that they needed to know about. So got to do the whole news side of things for a few years and then ended up here at Focus just a couple months ago. Okay, awesome. Paul? Yeah, Lisa, I go back 30 years to, uh, what? I know, a long time ago, <laughs> Okay, but uh, radio was my first uh, foray. I was at a news talk station in New York City, a station I, I listened to growing up, and then I wound up working for the newspaper that I delivered as a kid, a paper called Newsday. So I was in uh, both radio and newspaper, and I, it was very eye-opening, even back then, mm-hmm. uh, beginning in 1991. Mm-hmm. Good. And John, uh, talk to us a little bit about your experience with the news as a the youngest person at this table, probably. <laughs> so what's that like? So for me, I was a broadcast media major, but I don't have a lot of experience when it comes to news, except for one night in college, it was our assignment on radio to cover the 2016 election. Mm. So when it comes to news, that's about as far as my experience goes. So I am more of your citizen type who just <laughs> likes to keep up with what's going on in the headlines and try to keep myself informed. But man, one a, night. if you had to pick one night, 2016 is a pretty good <laughs> night to pick. It yeah. was a good night. I, I was up till 3 a.m. Wow. And it was fun. So That's cool. Okay, well, and many of you know that my background back in the day was in news-ish. Um, I was a 
freelance writer for the most part for a long time for magazines and some newspapers. And then I worked at a magazine in Washington, D.C. that focused on investigative reporting. And funnily enough, for this topic, I had an editor there who was always trying to get me to turn my news stories into exposés of the various people that he didn't like, (laughs) that he would (laughs) assign me, I'm doing air quotes, these stories that seemed super objective. And then when he went to edit them, all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, like roasting. And so I had to go toe-to-toe with him a few times over that because it really bugged me. So, uh, and then I was in the PR world for a while before coming to boundless as well. So, okay, so let's talk about how do you guys consume the news and how do you even do it? Do you try to do it objectively? Do you have a number of different sources or do you recognize your own bias on the front end of this? How do you, I mean, how do you even approach the news personally today? Well, uh, let me just start out by saying my my strong feeling is there's bias in the news, Mm -hmm. both sides. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. It's going to exist because a reporter, a writer is going to show their bias. And, and we use the term bias sort of pejoratively, like yeah. it's a bad thing. The reality is we all have our perspective on things. Mm-hmm. So based on what we leave in a story, what we take out reflects mm-hmm. our bias. Even what stories we cover is going to mm-hmm. be indicative of where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. So I think if you go into it with eyes wide open, it's a little less stressful. It's a little less frustrating. And um, I, you know, I'm a person who consumes all types of news, partly because of my job, but partly because I just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, have a, a good sense of, I think, where things are at on those particular forums, you know, which are liberal, which are super liberal, which are conservative. And I kind of, you know, the old saying, you take it with a grain of salt and mm-hmm. don't get all wound up about it. Yeah, that's good. For me, I am more of a headline scanner. Mm-hmm. So I like to just focus on what is kind of going on in the world. And I try to really stay away from the stuff that says, you know, so-and-so said this about so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of what is really reported in the news is he said, she said about what mm-hmm. is what it feels like most days. Mm-hmm. And so I just try to say, okay, what's actually going on in the world? What's important? And if it's just a bunch of back and forth or so-and-so got into an argument with another person on their talk show, then I try to stay away from that. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I know every morning I... I my form of headline scanning is what I do first thing in the morning and that's usually pulling emails that I get from both Fox News and CNN. And I scan all of what they have to offer and I would honestly say that based on the types of stories they cover and the way they cover them I'm wondering if they're even reporting on the same stuff or they're even in the same country because I'm like, what is this? And it is really wild to see that and to you have to be willing to step back and like Paul said, just be willing to reckon with it because it is what it is. And you have to say, okay, this is, this is the situation and I'm going to take what I can. And then sometimes I just have to move to entertainment headlines because I can't deal with it. But I don't know, Kaylee, how about you? Well, I will say I do see a lot of value in taking in news from many different sources because ultimately everyone's going to have a bias as a journalist. It comes from your life experiences, kind of like what Paul was mentioning. So you're going to come into things, even if you want to be like straight down the middle, just share the facts, I think life experience will always play a factor. So a journalist may have every intention, whether it be local news, national news, anything like that. I think the intention is there to be pure, uh, but it also depends on the outlet or news organization that you work for because the big heads at the top will tell you what to do and you have to do it as an employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if I could just add, um, you know, coming from a, 
uh, I was in New York City. I was in Long Island, but listening to New York City media, I had this vision of what a newsroom was like. Mm-hmm. As a little kid, I used to listen to WOR radio, and it was a big deal to me. Big voices, you know, ticker tape sounds. Mm-hmm. It was very um, dramatic and, and very um, almost romantic to mm-hmm. me. Well, when I started working at WOR radio, what shocked me was that they were getting their news. You know, they used to talk about the WOR newsroom, and it was sounded very official. <laughs> They just got their news from the newspapers. They oh. literally would just turn the pages of the paper and read the news. It was so dislike, disappointing. Yeah. I thought there was this big team out there. And I just thought, well, this is how bias gets passed on. Mm-hmm. Because you know, they the, at the time, now it's probably more internet. Of course, it's internet-based. But the newspapers set the agenda. So you know, the radio would take from the newspapers. The TV would take from perhaps the newspapers as well. But mm-hmm. it, it, it was not nearly what you think. So you think there's this big team out there. It could just be one guy behind a microphone making things up there you know? so there weren't guys out with like their their hats and their pencils and pads of paper like skulking around corners i'm 49 lisa i'm not 89 but yeah i think that <laughs> okay just, well when you said romantic that's why i just thought well, of those iconic moments you know like sure. his girl friday and all that you know yeah i guess you'd have to be 89 to know that so okay um so Okay, because I think there are different types of news stories, obviously. If there is an apartment building, like, burning down across the street, someone's going to report on that. And, you know, people know what, you know, you have to write a lead and you have to figure out what are the facts, how do I put that on there. But it seems today, when people talk about the news, we're mostly talking about stuff that can trend towards the super controversial. So, for example, do we have any kind of headlines or any kind of reporting that's being done on, say, the vaccine or something related to anything political or whatever events as they unfold how do you guys as sound-minded people and let's just say even believers find the truth in the stories where people are literally screaming that the truth is on their side and you don't know where it actually lies in a situation i'm making a face because that is (laughs) such a challenge it truly is because if one side says the truth is this and the other side says the truth is this. It's so hard. I think at the end of the day, you kind of have to decide maybe based on your own beliefs and convictions what it oh, – it's so hard. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. For me, practically, it's definitely reading more than one source. Mm-hmm. And if I find that, let's say, two different sources are reporting something different on the same story – it's probably a situation where I can come to a conclusion. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. There's Mm -hmm. probably a gray area where there's balance in between Mm -hmm. because both of them are coming at it from a partisan standpoint They're They have their agendas. They have people that frankly, they probably want to see win an election. Mm -hmm. And so when I am seeing two different extremes, I go, okay, this almost sounds like a broken marriage and the spouses are telling two different things. Mm-hmm. The p- truth is probably somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. So we just need the reporting counselors to right. come through. Okay. And, and when you're talking about source, I mean, there's not just the outlet source, but there's the the reporter. Mm-hmm. There's the writer or the commentator. You know, one thing that has been a trend in news is to insert more and more opinion into a story. Mm-hmm. And um, the New York Times, for example, has taken a lot of heat for doing this. And they've sort of responded to that by labeling some of their stories analysis, Mm -hmm. which always strikes me, you know, when the lead story in the Times is analysis, Mm -hmm. which is really their way of saying, we give up. We feel so strongly about this editorial. And this happened repeatedly with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They did not want to report it objectively. They wanted to push 
a particular agenda for all kinds of reasons, and they just would slap on the term analysis, mm. which from my perspective, the lead story should never be analysis. It mm. should be reporting, mm. and that is fair. So the minute I see that in a story, if I see it's analysis, I know that there's bias in there. Mm -hmm. And I look at the writer, I look at the source, and of course you kind of have to discern. But I mean, as Christians, I mean, there's nothing wrong with critical thinking. Mm -hmm. In fact, we, there's a bit of a dearth of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's okay to look at things skeptically. Um, and I think we have to develop that more as believers to have that sense. Not so much that, you know, there are certain commentators out there who act like they're always the smartest person in the room yeah. on our side too. But to be aware of the fact that you know, think for yourself and, 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 you know, ponder it. It doesn't, you don't have to have an opinion about everything immediately. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because my, I have a neighbor who I've talked about on the show. She just turned 96 and she every day reads three physical papers from cover to cover. I mean, does anyone do that anymore? Um, but she does. And it's funny to see from her perspective, like she just knows the whole history of these papers and how the way that they've done reporting has transpired because she's read them forever. I mean, I think one is our local paper here in Colorado Springs. I think one might be the Times and like the Wall Street Journal or something. Um, she might even have four, maybe one from her hometown or home area as well. But anyway, so but she'll get super worked up because she knows like the progression of the way things have gone or who's now in charge or who's running the op-ed page and what that means and all that. So I thought this would be kind of a fun question, especially because all y'all are kind of uh, into the news. You're kind of news hounds. I'll say that for Paul's benefit. Um, what do you go to different types of outlets for different types of news or just what are your, I mean, I just thought this would be fun. What are your personal preferences as far as Here's where I, I catch, you know, news, network TV. Here's where I go to cable. Here's where I, what I read in the newspaper. This I get online. This is, I mean, now there's like so many opportunities and, and diverse ways of consuming the news. What does it look like for you generally? Ooh, I think for me, I've actually just been going straight to the source lately. Um, I've been trying to stay really in tune with what's happening over in Afghanistan and our president's response to it. So what I would have fun doing in the last couple of weeks, especially, was I would watch the Department of Defense press briefing from start to finish. I would watch Jen Psaki do her press briefing from start to finish and then kind of scroll through my Twitter timeline, which does have a good mix of both sides on it, mm. and kind of see what the different sides would cherry pick after I actually saw those from start to finish. So that one's been my, uh, I guess, source of fun as a news hound lately is to kind of see the bias in action, maybe not necessarily coming from the reporters asking the questions in those press briefings, but just what gets pulled out of it that different outlets see as significant at the end. Which yeah. is cool that you mentioned that because I don't think, I mean, there are some people listening who wouldn't even know what it looks like to go to original sources. The fact that some of these are televised and some of them you can catch online and some of them you can get transcripts of. And so that's good uh, info to give. Of course, the, you, you know this, but I mean, looking at the original source and a press briefing could be very biased. And so mm -hmm. just because they say it doesn't make it so. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm telling you what you already know. All right. But, <laughs> I, um, I mean, I... I I have a lot of different sources, like a lot of people. I love the, the Wall Street Journal for their editorial page. I mean, they're sort of the last bastion of uh, conservative thought, mm -hmm. but that's very different than their new side. Their new side tends to be about as liberal as the, the average uh, paper will be. So mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time looking at that. 
Um, the New York Times is hopelessly liberal. You know, I had a friend who used to say, if you want to know, if you're conservative and you want to know what to think, just read the New York Times opinion page and, ha- and take the opposite view. Okay. Because they're almost wrong on everything. Um, but I love the New York Times for their obituaries. Like, okay. I mean, that to me, wow. no one does it better than them if you're looking to have well uh, crafted stories. And because most people who die are older, you know, it's, they're, they're fun to read because you, you yeah. obviously hear about people who have done great things. So those are those are just. Well, and two I'm sure thoughts. you have a love of page six, keeping up with all the social elites and all. That. <laughs> Not as much as you, Lisa. You would know way more than me about page no, six. Happenings. I get that from like TMZ and people. Well, and then there's the Babylon Bee because we know we can just keep up with so much <laughs> through them. But the Babylon Bee is now it's it's you know imitating reality Can't so much so that they get fact somewhat checked. legit. I know. Right. It's crazy. All right, John. Babylon B is a lot of fun. Yeah. I will say that. <laughs> okay. I use Real Clear Politics because they will pull stories from different sources. And then I'll go and look at like Fox and CNN as well and just really scan what are the main headlines for today. And I also like to keep up with things that are going on in the church. So Mm -hmm. I'll use Christian Post, sometimes Christianity Today, and really just try to keep up with that so that I can have an informed um, perspective on what is the church doing in today's culture? Like, who are the leading voices sounding mm-hmm. off on issues that we're all facing? I'm yeah. glad you mentioned the Real Clear brand, because that's a it's a real clear politics, but there's also real clear religion, yeah. real yeah. clear books, real clear science. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's curated content where you can do a quick scan of the headlines, and it provides the source and the headline, and then, you know, click away if you want. Okay. What about, um, you know, again, this is kind of putting me in the past a little bit but what about people who just say well can't you just go to like the associated press aren't they supposed to be the most unbiased of anyone out there aren't they just reporting the facts well if you look at that graph that you mentioned earlier where you see kind of outlets on the left on the right in the middle the ap tends to be more in the center of that graph leaning a little bit towards the left Mm. i will say as just my from my opinion a national perspective i think the ap may be the most unbiased compared to some of the others okay all right well that's good um yeah i was just thinking about this i was having a little bit of a a wistfulness around remembering when i was growing up watching like every night i would watch both the local news and the world news on i'm my parents i know had their favored network and i can't remember which one it was but feeling like that was just kind of a touch point of the day of feeling like as we were getting dinner ready or whatever that just happened and I never unless I watch a TV broadcast online I almost never turn on my TV for news anymore I don't and I don't have cable so cable I get all through online stuff too so I'm almost exclusively online I will not read a newspaper because I can't stand newsprint on my hands that is very sad and oh, very Lisa, just Lisa. elite <laughs> Yeah. You have to be so, like, you have to, like the old lady with the gloves, you know, like get the plastic gloves maybe out. I will. I'll be, I'll get over, I'll, I'll get my box of leftover pandemic gloves and start using them for reading the news. Um, but I know, so it is kind of sad because I feel like I, I try to stay up on stuff, but I'm not very diverse in my sources unless I can get the varied sources through their online versions of some sort and, and radio. I will, I'll hit up radio some too for various reasons. So, but, but I'll tell you, you know, your audience of course would be almost exclusively online and yeah. I'm sure they all probably resonate with what you said. And, but the reality is, I mean, it, a lot of people still do watch the evening news. I mean, it, we're talking tens of millions of people. Wow. And so like they still have a very strong influence on the older generation, I would yeah. say not the younger, right? Yeah. But 
Um, that's why, you know, when people will, will, you know, they're partisan cheerleading about Fox or CNN viewers, they'll talk about, you know, three million people watched, you know, Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or something like that. And that's a lot of people. Yeah. But that still dwar- is dwarfed by like the third place network news, which mm-hmm. could be 10 million. Yeah. Um, so there's still a big influence out there and for good or bad. I mean, that's just the reality. Well, and two things that I think of coming out of that is one, those of you listening, if you want to understand your grandparents and maybe even your parents, keep up with some of that, because that probably is where they're getting their, you know, their information from. And that's very, you know, that's very near and dear to their hearts. And if you want to understand them and have conversation with them, that's a good thing to be up on. And then two, I just feel like there are still so many iconic moments that happen through those kind of traditional outlets. Like, I mean, if we think historically of, you know, various announcements that happen, whether landing on the moon, JFK's assassination, other things that have happened, you know, those are becoming fewer and far between because we don't have everyone gathered around a television set at one moment in time or one moment in history. But um, it's just a cool slash nostalgic slash, you know, it's just a great way. I, I would highly recommend consuming news and then having conversations around it with your friends, because that's what I feel like what people used to do. And it was a great way of getting a lot of perspectives and kind of being in the fray. What's your earliest news memory, like where you think back? My earliest news memory, because I was born in the 70s, was of, and I was probably in kindergarten, of hearing a report on the gas crisis um, in the 70s. I just remember, for some reason, I remember an image on the TV, and then that was juxtaposed against um, Carter Ford coming up against the election and stuff like that. So, yeah, how about you? Yeah, uh, well, mine would be the bicentennial. Oh, yeah. It's a big deal. I mean, I remember the sailing ships in the harbor. But I think the the one that really stands out to me is the uh, miracle on ice. Oh. For some reason, I remember my, my dad rolling the TV into the dining room Wow. To watch something about it. So that was, I mean, I was, I was eight. So okay. that it was really resonated with me. Okay. How about you, Kaylee? Probably 9-11. Mm-hmm. I was probably six when it happened. Mm-hmm. So watching that on TV after it all happened was probably my earliest. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah, mine was also 9-11 because that was just mere days before my seventh birthday. So I definitely recall it. I was a little too young to understand what was going on at the time. But uh, looking back on it, it really was a huge event. Yeah. Awesome. Well, oh my goodness, we're out of time. But hopefully we gave you a few ideas for moving forward as you think about the way you approach the news, your own um, bias in relation to that, as we were alluding to, and then just really feeling like, you know, hey, I can be part of this conversation. I can be reasonable in the way that I pursue the facts and analyses around things. And uh, hopefully we can all continue the conversation. So thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks Lisa. Lisa. Thank you. This world is a thief walking the streets trying to steal my hope, steal my dreams, dressed up in disguise, whispering lies so sweet. I don't want to go one more day watching you take all the good things in this life the good Lord gave. I'm taking back what belongs to me. I'm ready to fight. I'm taking back what the enemy stole from my Well, 
folks. We are here for this week's culture segment, which, attention, uh, stay tuned because next week is going to be a continuation of this conversation. So don't feel like we have to get it all out uh, this week because we will continue it next week because we are talking to our friend and Boundless contributor, Eric Demeter. Eric, welcome to The Boundless Show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, this is fun and uh, so cool because many folks in our sphere have seen your articles on Boundless. I mean, we were just talking beforehand. It's been a while uh, since you've been here. You are out and about serving right now, currently with YWAM in Greece, and you just decided to pop back to the States to do the Boundless show, <laughs> among a few timing. other things. <laughs> yeah, so that's very cool. Um, well, you are an author, you're a speaker, you're a teacher. I know you're doing a lot of work now in the realm of like spiritual direction and spiritual formation and just helping with discipleship on a number of fronts in in different arenas. And as part of this, you actually have a brand new book that is titled How Should a Christian Date? It's not as complicated as you think. Uh, so don't worry, guys. We'll make uh, we'll make Eric prove that. <laughs> no, it really is complicated, Eric. No pressure. Everyone's like, <laughs> yeah, you prove it. Um, but anyway, very fun. Uh, this is a book, you guys, that I actually endorsed. Uh, Eric gave me the privilege of reading it beforehand. And so uh, just a really great take with lots of scriptural backing on how we can do this thing called dating. And so um, I want to jump in. And in fact, uh, earlier this week, we published an excerpt from the book or an article adapted from the book where you talk about some of the myths, the common myths around Christian dating. And uh, so I want to kind of start out with that because there are a few of them that you debunk in your book. And let's just kind of highlight a couple of them. Uh, The first one being that men are only interested in a woman's looks. Okay. And this is, <laughs> I, I know that this is a, a topic that is talked about because I've been in the circles of women who are like, oh, he wouldn't even ask me out. And I'm sure it's just because he's only about looks. So he's only, mm. you know, so there's a lot of angst around this topic, but tell us why is that a myth? Yeah, I think it's a myth because most of the guys that you want to date, at least the mature ones, they want the whole package. Mm-hmm. So, of course, looks is part of it. But, you know, they are, they're looking for brains. They're looking for chemistry. Um, it may be an, an age thing, too, because I know that the older that I get, character becomes way more Im- important than, than just looks. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Well, and then let's just, I mean, jump in again. I want to just do a flyby on some of these. The next one being you're too picky. And I think this could apply to either gender uh, when it comes to dating. But explain what people are saying when they say that. And why would you call that one a myth? Usually what they mean is that, oh, your standards are too high. Or there are available people to date, but you're just not choosing to Go on dates with those people. I like the quote, the marriage researcher, John Gottman, who is um, who says that the people that have the highest expectations, the people that have the highest standards for marriage, find the best marriages because it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If your standards are low, you're going to find that low standard. But if you keep your, your standards high, 
then you will naturally meet that that same kind of person. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because I feel like, you know, we talk a lot about this at Boundless, the idea that, you know, maybe a couple generations ago, it was much more a situation of like, who's in my sphere? Who am I going to college with? Who lives in my neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Who? But mm-hmm. now with the whole world open to us with online dating, I think the paralysis of choice has become really problematic for a lot of people because there's always that, well, this person's great, but what about this person? Or what about the, this person plays guitar? This person, you know, whatever. So it yeah. makes it very consumeristic, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it does. And as far as what's on your list, you know, it's not the length of the list it's not the quantity it's really the quality Mm -hmm. you know that i would say filled it up with character traits those traits that will stand the the test of time but yeah with the internet too you have so many options you know you you can meet people you know you you can set your range on those sides of how many miles are you willing to to travel to to meet someone so i think you really have to pray and deliberately narrow your your options yeah Okay, the next one I think is is kind of interesting and uh, very timely because this morning I was doing a radio interview on being set up on dates and whole the art of the setup kind of thing. And one thing that I was talking about was this idea that too often we put too much import and too much pressure on a date and we think like well, you know, maybe eventually I'll go out with this person, but not until I've figured out every possible thing about them that I can. And kind of this whole, like, we're doing recon, we're researching them, we're asking all of our friends about them. And I thought this one goes hand in hand with this, this concept of that you have to know what you want before going on a date. Like you have to have this whole slate of qualities and stuff and and, um, assumptions about a person that you're then going to slot them into. And my goodness, I think that would be just completely, that would just drive people bonkers to have to feel like they're filling in a, a chart or something on a date. Yeah. Well, there's no, nothing wrong with getting some basic information on a setup. Mm-hmm. But uh, my litmus test for a good date is you're exploring the possibility of marriage. Mm-hmm. That's it. If there's no possibility for marriage, then I would say don't go on that that date. But if there's even a spark, if there's even an inkling that this person could, quote, be the one, then, then I would say go on the date. But I think that that's also why a lot of people aren't going on dates is because dating has become so much pressure, like so much mm-hmm. stock has you know gone on that first date. And in some communities, you really have to know that you want to marry them mm-hmm. uh, even before going on a, you know, on a date. So I think we need to lessen the pressure, lower kind of what the standard is on a date, but still keeping in mind that it is uh, that you're going out for the, for the possibility of marriage. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so good. And and again, you're you're getting to know another person made in the image of God, and you don't have to put so many expectations on the date itself or the relationship, you know, kind of moving into it. Because like you said, you know, have some good questions in hand, figure out some great stuff about the person. You might emerge with a friend or an acquaintance for the future and stuff. And I think that's where just injecting a certain amount of chill into the process can be pretty pretty helpful um on the front end all right and let's talk about the the myth that all the good ones are already taken Uh, i've talked to people who are like yeah there are people out there that i would have dated but they're already married and it just seems like why are people just only considering married people as being worthy of having been dated or being married and stuff um i do feel like that's a myth uh that 
you know, again, I know you talk a little bit about God not being limited in his resources, which is a good principle to start from on that one. Yeah, I think that that's a theological issue, like um, that who do you think God is? And I don't think God's up there scratching his head, wondering about your dating life and who you're going to marry. You know, God's not like, man, that's a tough one. You know, you're a tough case. You know, God's not like like that. God knows that you want to be married. The good news is that the the statistics show that 90 to 95 percent of people will get married at some point. It may not be exactly when you want to be married, but there's always hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's very good. Okay, well, I want to turn a corner and talk about something that you really emphasize in the book, which I think is very important, and that is the foundation of a good dating relationship, which, you know, we say this a lot here at Boundless, that, you know, you, to in order to date well, you have to be pursuing health as a person, uh, spiritual health, emotional health, mm-hmm. you know, all all levels of health, because... The last thing you want to do is date and just hope that this person is going to compensate for all your own ills and all your own deficiencies and like, well, it doesn't matter if I really follow God because I'm sure I'll date someone who does and they're just going to you know, pick up the slack for me. So um, uh, you illustrate this, though, with a very sad story about a car purchase that you made. And I would love for you to tell that story because that one, that was just sad. But two, mm. I think it's a great segue into knowing what you're going after, and really the importance of having a strong foundation. Yeah, so being uh, here in Colorado, I knew that four-wheel drive vehicles sell for a higher price, so I thought I would buy one in the Midwest, drive it out here, and uh, make a profit. The problem is I bought this nice truck. It had a shiny red paint job looked great on the outside but underneath it was covered in rust there was actually holes in the frame and I took it I I bought it took it to the mechanic and they said no you're you're like we can't fix your truck it is irreparable (laughs) I'm like dang so I had to sell it back to the original owner and I lost like 600 bucks so it was a it's a bad deal it's a bad deal yeah unfortunate so well let's talk about a foundation in our dating lives so explain what you're talking about what the importance of that is. And then really, for someone who's like, do I have this foundation? How do I know? What does that look like? And how do I look for it in another person? Explain a little bit of that thought process. Well, yeah, I think that the greatest gift that you can give your future spouse is your relationship with Christ, Mm -hmm. because they won't be perfect. You're not perfect. And at some point, probably sooner than later, that they will disappoint you in some way. So who else will you turn to but Christ when your partner doesn't give you what what you need or when the marriage gets hard? I mean, Jesus is our foundation. And um, but it it has practical ramifications. There was a season where I was dry. I was um, I felt like God was was distant. And I did the thing you shouldn't do, which was started dating a, a woman. And I was basically a spiritual vacuum cleaner, and I <laughs> sucked. Uh, I, I tried to suck all of my well-being from her. She sensed that. She um, pulled away and basically said, Eric, I, I can't give you what, what you need. But that was a big learning experience and reminded me again that I, that I need to have 
God as as the foundation. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that because I think stereotypically, I know a lot of women think this, that they're the ones that are painted as usually needy in relationships. Like, oh, you know, I just need this guy to, you know, make me feel better about myself or I have to be in a relationship. But there are many ways that guys trip up as well. And just speaking as a guy, what would you say? Speak to the ladies about, give them some inside intel about like what, what to look out for in a guy that, could be very much red flag behavior, very uh, unhealthy behavior or attitudes. And um, what would you say really characterizes a guy who is probably on the right track and, and ready to date? Not perfect, but you know some healthy indicators as well. Yeah, I think that guys, we can be just as needy as um, any anyone else. And we're looking for a companion, but obviously that can go too far where we become a vacuum cleaners. So I, I'd say signs to watch out for if if they are going through a tough time. Um, like for me, I was leaving a church and I just wasn't in a good place. It was just a, uh, a very difficult uh, place. So I think that if there has been trauma in someone's life, if somebody uh, had a death, you know, or maybe they're they're going through depression or just feeling lonely, like you are always going to feel, you know, if you really want to be married, there might be a sense of loneliness in in your life. Um, and that's okay. But there is a difference between feeling a little bit lonely and waiting for someone to uh, complete you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you get that sense, it's just that sense of someone's trying to take more than what I think I, I can give. Mm-hmm. That's good. I remember, too, something that I would offer because I dated this guy um, is the guy who almost exudes a little bit too much like false confidence or Mm. is is trying to move the relationship along too quickly. So, you know, a guy I dated was just like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, well, I'm going to be the leader in this relationship. So let me just tell you how this thing's going to play out. And I remember asking my pastor about it and the relationship imploded and and he was like, yeah, he said, well, I tell guys, you know, it's it's great to choose to lead and to be honest and take the risks and stuff like that. But guys, you got to look behind you and make sure someone's following you. If you're just storming yes. ahead yeah. and like you just think you have this plan, but you're not taking into account her feelings, her concerns, her, you know, where where she is, her personality in the process, uh, that can be kind of complicated. But women will too, will make the mistake of saying, oh, I see, quote unquote, leadership. So I just need to, this guy's great. But sometimes it could be masking some great insecurities. Yeah, and and I think most guys want a partnership. You know, mm-hmm. guys definitely want to lead. Most guys do, but uh, I think that most guys also want a teammate. Mm-hmm. But that that steamrolling from a guy is often based on anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you know that they want to rush rush ahead, so I, I think that if dating's not fun. If it becomes a job or you have that, if it's anxiety-based, then I don't think that you're dating well. Yes, dating's complicated. Yes, dating can be confusing, but have fun. And if it's not fun, then what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about, um, you know, in the few minutes that we have remaining, let's talk a little bit about navigating a breakup well, because I have been through some, a couple pretty catastrophic breakups and, you know, some that were just like, probably shouldn't have been dating in the first place, whatever. You have walked through your share of breakups, um, even a broken engagement and talk us through that about what does it look like? Because again, the one thing I always say is, these are like real people. This isn't, I remember after one of my breakups, I came into work and we had a temp working for us and she was an older woman, very sweet. And I just mentioned to her, yeah, I'm having a hard day. I just went through a pretty bad breakup. And she's like, oh, well, on to the next one. <laughs> I'm like, this is not like a commodity yeah, of just yeah, like, just move it. on, you know, whatever. Yeah. So talk a little bit about being able to sit in the grief of really letting go of a relationship, but also being hopeful for what God can do in the future. Yeah, I had a broken engagement, and uh, one was enough for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say everyone handles grief differently. Some people are ready to jump back on the horse, you know, but some people, I know me and, and maybe you too, need need time. There's a process. There's a, there's a letting go. I... Uh, think that you need to have a close community. You need to be able to cry. Um, I remember making a lot of altar calls, <laughs> going up in the front of my church after breakups. And um, I remember uh, on one of those, uh, my pastor, this was like 20 years ago, came up and knelt next to me and said, well, Eric, have you given it to God? I'm like, yeah, I gave it to God, but I'm going to have to keep keep giving it to to God, you know, tomorrow and and the, and the next day. So there is no one time that we quote give it to God and and grief, you know, and getting back to hope is a um is a process, but um there is hope. And God is a healing God and God wants to heal the the heart and um he will do that. Yeah. Is there anything that you can think of in particular after having walked through relationships that you have that didn't work out that has kind of made you pivot a little bit in how you date now or what you're looking for or any lessons learned in that? Yeah, I would definitely pray more and date less as much as I love (laughs) dating and I want to to get people out there and date. Yes, please go. Uh, But do it prayerfully. So I would have prayed more. I probably wouldn't have went on as many dates, kind of knowing that, hey, this isn't going to work. And I have a pretty good idea that I'm not going to marry this this person. So why would I go out, kind of complicate things, Uh, especially if I'm lonely? Like if, if you're on a Friday night and you're lonely, uh, don't chat with the person, you know, maybe don't, (laughs) Ask someone to go on a date when you feel especially uh, low. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great point. Great advice. And I know I've had to make some alterations in kind of how I approach dating and and people and what I'm looking for kind of in the process. It's all, it definitely is a process, y'all. So, okay, well, if you are willing to stay around, Eric, we're going to go pick this conversation up next week. And for those of you listening, just so you know, we are going to talk about actually like dating. Like, how do you date well? What does this look like practically when you're actually on a date? How do you find people, meet people? Should you consider people that maybe you hadn't considered before? And Eric even talks about finding a mate uh, is akin to baking a cheesecake. So for those of you that want to find out what that's about, uh, join us next week. You ready to join us next week, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, cool. Well, everyone, in the meantime, I want you to know that this book that we've been talking about, which is titled How Should a Christian Date? It's Not as Complicated as You Think, is available from us here at Boundless uh, for a gift of any amount to Boundless. And so just go to boundless.org. You can search 712. That is this week's episode. And uh, you will see the book cover there. Just click on it, give a gift to Boundless, and we will send a copy of Eric's book to you as our thank you to you. And so, um, you know, grab a copy, get a copy for your friends. Maybe you can do it as a book study. It would be really fun to be able uh, to do that. And so uh, you can even get a start on it, you know, get the book. And uh, otherwise, (laughs) we'll plan on seeing you around next week for the rest of the conversation. So hopefully that will be the case. As we finish out the show, we open up our inbox, and I am going to today answer this week's question. And so here it is. Our listener says, I read one of your articles about taking relationships slow, and I agree that doing so is important. I'm also wondering, how would you determine when a relationship is going too slow? I'm seeing a guy, and we both agreed that we wanted to move slowly and do things right, but he's starting to become impatient with me. Other people in his circle meet someone, date immediately, and get married four months later. That's common for him, but very different for me. What should we do? Okay, well, this is a good question. And of course, timing in relationships, you would hope that it would just be super easy and it would come naturally, but it usually doesn't. And so you have to find a way to get on the same page. So I actually dated a guy who, not even joking, on our second date presented me with a PowerPoint presentation, including spreadsheets on the timeline of our relationship and how it was going to progress. And I was during the headlights and like, what? And It even included like when he thought we should get engaged. And I'm like, dude, this is our second date. And I was all awkward about it and stuff. So um, the fact is, in fact, it reminds me of uh, talking to one of my pastors one time when I was talking about this specific situation with him. And he's like, yeah, Lisa, it's great when a guy leads, but he has to realize that he has to have someone willing to follow him. And so he needs to like look behind him and be like, is anyone there? Um, (laughs) Because if no one's there and this person's not keeping up with him, he can't just charge ahead and be insensitive in leading in that way. And so I think what you need to do with this guy is have an honest conversation about any kind of timeline that you guys feel you need to lay out. And you don't have to be super scientific about it, but you have to outline some expectations and make sure that you have checkpoints throughout these seasons of dating that allow you to both kind of like 
set kind of where you are, maybe share some thoughts, kind of be like, okay, where, where do you feel you are? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I mean, it's like, this is conversations, maybe some of this needs to happen sooner rather than later about like, what are you comfortable with as far as the boundaries of what we're sharing in our relationship or physical boundaries, you know, hopefully that conversation has already happened. And so that you all feel that you're moving at a comfortable pace. Um, you know, this is what is commonly called the DTR, define the relationship conversation. And you should have several of these over the course of a relationship so that someone's not like, well, I'm ready ready to get engaged. And the other person's like, I feel like we've just been on a few dates. So, uh, you know, and, and again, how serious are you getting? Uh, what is this looking like? You all, you need to have those honest conversations. Now, I would also recommend, this is just a little caveat on the side, that you personally, feeling like you're dragging your feet a little bit more, be willing to have um, an honest conversation with yourself and evaluate any hesitancy that you do have and why that is. And this is where you might want to get some objective eyes on your situation because I'm not saying that it's inappropriate for you to be kind of feeling like you want things to move a little more slowly. I think that's fine. I, I think taking it slow is great. Um, but, you know, caving to irrational fears is probably not great. And so, you know, someone, this is where I don't know how long you've been dating, but, you know, someone that's been dating like seven years and they're still unwilling to pull the trigger. I think there's some more conversation that has to happen around that. Um, in fact, I've known people who've been in that situation where they're like, well, we've dated seven years, but I don't really feel like we're ready to commit yet. So I think there's a bigger issue at play there. And like I said, I'm not saying that this is your situation. Um, but for many people, it can be and there are factors that play into that, like maybe your parents divorced or uh, maybe you have this feeling like I need to know everything about a person or I'm just afraid of commitment and I don't trust him or her. And so you got to find out what is playing into that, what could be problematic when it comes to that. Finally, I would recommend in having these conversations before, during, and after, commit the entire situation to prayer because God will certainly honor that and walk you through the jitters that you have, the concerns you have, the feeling off in timing with this guy that you're dating, and and really read him as well. Is he willing to kind of pull back the pace a little bit? Is he being honoring of you and your concerns? Because that's a great window into who he is too. So make sure you uh, have that consideration. And if you need to bring someone else into the conversation, maybe a pastor, maybe a counselor, maybe a great mentor couple, that's always wise as well, because they can kind of help you parse out what's real, what's not real, and what really needs to be discussed. So hopefully that will get you started. Again, uh, really appreciate your heart in this and you're wanting to be in this relationship. You're wanting to honor it. Uh, you just have some concerns about the pace and how it's moving and how it feels a little bit off in, uh, in the pacing itself. So be encouraged. Uh, there is time to figure this out, and I know you can go after it with God's help. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. As always, we do want to hear from you. If you write to us at editor at boundless.org, we will answer your question in the future. Of course, we've also answered a ton of questions in the past. So feel free to go to boundless.org and just search maybe the topic that you're looking for and see what we might have covered or talked about in the past. Otherwise, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family.